0: We're going to be studying the Word of God today from the book of Matthew. So if you turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew, we're going to continue our study as we've been going through it. You also find in your bulletin a handout, and I am going to follow this handout. I'm going to read some of the quotes from it. I'm not going to read the whole thing, um, but I am going to read some quotes from it. In fact, I underlined the quotes that I'm going to read to help us know that. But I'm doing this for one reason. I'm do also doing this for a reason. These uh, quotes are taken from um, a book that's entitled The Expository Thoughts on the Gospels. There's actually several volumes of this because each gospel has expository thoughts. And this is uh, from J.C. Ryle. And uh, I wanted to introduce Ryle to you. I know that I've quoted from this book extensively, but one of the reasons is I want to encourage you, uh, we have them in the library here, by the way, if you're looking for something that would really, maybe for your own devotions and that, if you're looking for something that would be enriching to you, I, would, I could really strongly recommend this. What Ryle does is he'll take a passage of scripture and then he'll just share some thoughts on that passage of scripture. And in fact, so what I did, the reason why your handout is so long today is that I took the section that I'm preaching on today, Matthew 26, 47 to 56, and I asked Sue to put in the entire section from Ryle's book. And so what you may want to do is take this home and and read it through. Um, But these things are incredibly devotional. They're incredibly good. And if you wanted to work through a gospel, this would be a great way to work through the gospel. They're very inexpensive. They're easily available online. They're actually available online where you can actually just read it online. You don't even have to buy the book. But, um, but anyway, that's what the handout is. So I will, be, I will be quoting from this handout. So if you wanted to have that handy for you, uh, that would be good. So what, the passage that we're gonna be looking at today is Matthew chapter 26. We're following through our study of the book of Matthew and we've come to Jesus arrest. So let me read it for us, I'll pray, and then we'll open up the word. Matthew chapter 26, verse 47. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude, uh, with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. And immediately he went up to Jesus and said, "'Greetings, rabbi,' and he kissed him. But Jesus said to him, "'Friend, why have you come?' And then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus said to him, "'Put your sword in its place,' For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? And in that hour, Jesus Jesus said to the multitudes, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you, teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me. But all of this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all of the disciples forsook him and fled. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, as we come to these texts, we feel like we're just walking on sacred ground, and we feel like there's no human being that could plunge the depths of these texts. That the mystery and the wonder and the glory of what you did through your son on that evening will be something that we will wonder and, and learn from and be amazed and plunge the depths of further and further in all the years of eternity of heaven. And so, Father, we pray in the few minutes that we will study this text, we ask that you would come by the power of your Holy Spirit and that you would teach us. You would speak to us. You would have a word for us in this and that we would hear your word and that we would see Jesus and that we would glorify your son and that we would love him and serve him better. Help us now, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I know that most of us here in this room agree with Peter. When Peter said, when, he, when the disciples were asked in Matthew 16, who do men say that I am? Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. We believe in this place that Jesus is the eternal word. The eternal word that was with God and was God and the eternal word that became flesh. We believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came down from heaven and died for the sins of the world. We believe that this incredible, wonderful story of what Jesus has done and who Jesus is, and that this is so incredible, it is so wonderful, it is so marvelous, that all other religions and all other worldviews pale in insignificance compared to this. They're, They're pathetic, and I don't say that to be mean. I say that just truthfully, and we're going to open this up, that they can't compare with what we have here, and especially what we have here in this text. Because in this text, just to summarize this text, in this text, the Son of God allows himself to be arrested. That's what you're going to have in this text. The very Son of God allows himself to be arrested. I believe that the angels still are lost in wonder and awe and amazement that the Son of God allowed himself to be arrested. The other thing that you're going to see in this text is that Jesus is intentionally laying down his life. Jesus is clearly in charge of his own arrest. And he is laying down his life. He's doing something that with each step, he is intentionally making sure that this plays out. And the Bible tells us that this was his authority to do. In John chapter 10 and verse 11, Jesus says this, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Then a few verses later, Jesus said this in John 17 and 18. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge or this authority I have received from my Father. So there is a very unique authority to lay down his life. Now, this isn't a suicide. Jesus' death is not a suicide. Sometimes cynical people say that. Jesus' death is laying down his life for others. He's intentionally laying down his life. Imagine there was a nuclear reactor. We're a little bit worried about this because of stuff that's going on in Ukraine. But imagine there was a nuclear reactor and that nuclear reactor uh, was malfunctioning to such an extent that if somebody didn't go in there and flip certain switches, it was going to melt down, which would then cause a nuclear disaster, which would then kill millions and millions of people. And imagine if somebody volunteered to go into that uh, nuclear reactor, run in there, and flip those switches. But in doing that, he was going to be so radiated that he was going to die from that. He could get to the switches, he could get it flipped, but he was going to die. The radiation would be so great that he would die. Imagine somebody doing That's not a suicide. That's a mission to rescue millions and millions of people. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's laying down his life. He is intentionally laying down your life. Now, it's hard to die. We don't want to do it. You don't want to die. I don't want to die. It's hard to die. And if right now, for instance, you were told that you have six weeks to live or a week to live, that you were going to die, that's going to be hard. That's going to be difficult. It's hard to lay down your life. It's hard to die. I mean, it's hard to die intentionally for other people. It's hard to go through this step, what Jesus is about to go through. It's agonizing. We've studied Gethsemane. This is agonizing. But, dear friends, it's hard to go through this and take this intentional step and continue to be intentional and follow through. It's hard to do that when there's actually a way out. That's even harder. That's tempting, and we're going to see that in this text. So let's look at the text in detail. We begin by, I'm going to kind of give a little bit of a title to each section we're going to look at. So we begin with Judas and the mob. That's verses 47 and 48. And while he was still speaking, remember, this was Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is with his disciples. He's been praying. He's been sweating drops of blood. And then he says, behold, rise, let us be going, see my betrayers at hand. And then verse 47, and while he was still saying those words, behold, Judas, one of the 12, with a great multitude, with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign saying, Whomever I kiss, this is the one sees him. Judas is coming, he is identified, and he's coming with a great multitude. See the, see the adjective there? He's coming, there was a large crowd of people with Judas. And these, every single person in that crowd is armed with a sword. And this sword isn't like, like one of these really long swords that you just saw the British uh, king, the new British king carrying. Uh, it's not that, this is probably a shorter sword, it's almost like a dagger. It was a, it was a handy sword that people carried around, but they were all armed with either swords or clubs, and the literal word is wood. They got two by fours. These are, these are just, this is just a gang, a mob of thugs, as it were, sent out from the chief priests and elders. Verse 47 makes it very clear that was there. this is who they sent out. But this is, it is this great mob. Now notice, interesting, verse 47, Judas is identified. Behold, Judas. But then look at verse 48. He's identified as the betrayer. The betrayer, his betrayer. And it says that his betrayer gave him a sign, which is a kiss. And so then the next section, which you could entitle a warm greeting from a false friend, is verses 49 and 50. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. I want to stop here for a second because there's actually some nuances here in the original language that I'd like to bring out because it, 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 it's interesting is what's happening here okay um, in Greek language <clears throat> there's a, there's a word that is entitled. The, the, the word there, there's several words to love Agape is one of them and Philo is another one Philo and Philo uh, is we're familiar with this word because we have the word philosophy, which is lover of Sophia, which is wisdom, philosophy, philanthropy, lover of mankind. There used to be philanthropic organizations that would give money to poor people or help educate people. Love of mankind, philo. Philo means love. The word is kind of a friendship love. And the word also then took on the association of kiss. Now, kiss is a greeting. The kiss uh, is a greeting, and especially in Western cultures, Eastern cultures, if you've ever been in any of these cultures, where you will be kissed. You'll be kissed on the cheek, and and we see this oftentimes in those cultures. That was a greeting, and that was called a philo. It's a philo in Greek. It's to to kiss. And it's, it's a greeting that is between friends. Now, here in our culture... We don't kiss, okay? We don't. That is not a typical greeting. We 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 shake hands, we hug, and things like this. And so here, this is this is a, a, a type of affection between men here. And so there's there's all these jokes. Uh, internet things of, you know, men hugs and chest bumps and things like that, high fives. The way men sort of interact with each other, uh, you know, the, the, the clasping of the hands and then pulling each other close to each other and, and men hugs. And that's what this is referring to. And that's what you do with friends. You, you, you show that kind of affection to friends. And Jesus and, and Judas obviously showed that kind of affection to each other. Now it's interesting here JC Ryle has an interesting insight into this and I did want to quote this for you. Look at your first underlined quote. I'm taking them in order, but I failed to underline the sentence the f- sentence before it, so I'm going to read it. Just to see the first underlined quote. Look at the sentence above it. It would there, seem therefore that when Judas kissed our Lord, he only did that which all of the apostles were accustomed to do when they met their master after an absence. So when they were away from Jesus and they came to Jesus, they, they did this philo, they did this kiss. They kissed each other on the cheeks. And then Ryle draws this really interesting, uh, draw. Uh, draws out. He says, let us draw comfort from this little circumstance for our own souls. Our Lord Jesus Christ is a most gracious and condescending savior. He's not an austere man, repelling sinners and keeping them at a distance. He is not a being so different from us in nature that we must regard him with awe rather than affection. He would have us rather regard him as an elder brother and a beloved friend. His heart in heaven is still the same that it was on earth. He is ever meek, merciful, and condescending to men of low estate. Let us trust him and not be afraid. It's kind of cool. A guy who would, who would greet his fellow disciples so warmly as it was normal greeting... Why, you know, th- this is a good Savior. This isn't a Savior we should be afraid of. And so then it says this. So then in verse 48, so then Judas gives them the sign. When you guys see me kissing, I will kiss him because it's going to be dark. There's not going to be any street lights. It's going to be dark. We're sneaking up on them. And, uh, and we're in, the, in the fog of the darkness there, I'm going to go up to just Jesus, and I'm going to greet him, and I'm going to kiss him. When I kiss him, you grab him. And there's very violent language here. You grab him, you seize him, you get a hold of him quickly there. And so that's what happens. And so in verse 49, gee, he went up to Jesus and he says, greetings, Kyre is the word. And that word also comes from the family of grace and, and rejoice. And, and it's, so he's being exuberant here. He's actually being a real jerk right now. Okay, he is being a, a, a betrayer that's really playing his part well. Hey, great to see you, Jesus, my friend. Jesus, my friend, rabbi, teacher, honored one. And then he kisses him. Now, you know, it's interesting here. We can't do this in English. We can't do it in English. But it says when the word kiss is introduced in verse 48, it says, whomever I kiss, it's philo. But when it's, it's given to us in verse 49, in Greek, it's kataphilo, kataphilo. And kata is an intensifying word. It's an intensifying prefix. It intensifies the word that follows. And what this means is that that Judas affectionately kissed him. Judas kissed him like a a friend would. Think, Think of a hug. Okay, think of a hug, like like you 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 meet somebody and you hug them. We hug around here a lot, and so you 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 hug somebody. You draw them near. You hug somebody. Okay, but if say for instance say for instance my wife Jan say I I haven't seen my wife Jan for 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 a week or something and or maybe two weeks or something. I went away on a trip and I come back. I haven't seen her and I see her in the airport. There's a real temptation for me to not only just hug her but to grab her and pick her up off of her legs and just twirl her around and things like this. That would be an affectionate hug. In Greek, that would be a kata hug. That would be an affectionate hug. And so Judas comes and he greets Jesus affectionately like, you're my brother, man. You're my bro. I mean, this was a man hug of all man hugs. This was a, a, a real affectionate kiss. And he's playing this all up. But then look at verse 50. But Jesus said to him, friend, friend, now you say, okay, no big deal. No, it actually is a big deal. You know why? This word is only used three times in the entire Bible, and all three times they're used in the book of Matthew, and we've already studied them in the other two times that they've been used, so when I remind you of them, hopefully you remember. It's only used three times, this word friend, and it has a definite nuance and meaning. It's used the first time of the man who went out to hire workers and he hires these guys in the early morning. Then he hires these guys late at night and then he pays them all. And the guys who were hired in more. morning, they come with, hey, wait a minute, this isn't fair, this isn't fair. And he uses this word friend. He says, friend, I can pay whatever I want to pay. And so how would we translate that in our world today? I think we would translate it something like this. Hey, pal. Hey, buddy. Now, if somebody says to you, hey, pal. He's not saying, you're my best friend. Let me hug you and lift your legs. No, he's not doing that. He's saying, hey, pal. Okay. The second time that it's used is in the parable that Jesus tells when the guy, the king is throwing a banquet at a marriage banquet and the guy walks in and he's not dressed right. And he says, hey, pal, what are you doing in here? Who let you in here? Hey, pal. Hey, buddy. Hey, hey, friend. Who let you in here? Jesus uses this word. Now, the third time it's ever used is here. Hey, pal. Hey, buddy. What are you doing here? And I think that when Jesus used those words. So, so again, think of this contrast. Judas is walking up to him. Hey, great to see you, Jesus. Rabbi. And he gives him this big hug and this big kiss. Ah, oh, Rabbi, good to see you. A kata fellow. And Jesus says, pal. I think at that point that had to have just stabbed the heart of Judas Jesus is starting to hold Judas off at arm's length Jesus is starting to expose him as a betrayer and dear friends I just want us to have a warning here Jesus Christ is going to sit on his throne and he is going to judge every single one of us in this room and at that point That reception of Jesus that you're going to get is either going to be extremely warm, extremely warm, or it's going to be extremely frighteningly cold. Depart from me. And Judas is beginning to feel the judgment coming upon his soul. Pal, why have you come? Hey, buddy, why are you here? Why are you here? Of course, the famous expression of this is given in the book of Luke, isn't it? Luke chapter 22 and verse 48. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Really, Judas? That's what you're doing? And so then, then we have the violence breaks out. The violence breaks out. And so notice what it says. As soon as Jesus said those words... Then Matthew, who's summarizing this somewhat, says they come forward to lay hands on Jesus. They lay hands on Jesus. They grab Jesus. Then suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand, drew his sword, the same sword, the same small sort of dagger, and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And now... Uh, let me just bring together all of the other gospel writers of what's going on because the scene gets very violent. Uh, people start grabbing Jesus, roughing him up. Peter, where he's identified in one of the gospels. Peter pulls out his sword and he goes to defend Jesus and he whacks at, some, at this guy and he cuts his ear off and his ear actually falls to the ground or it's hanging there by a piece of flesh. But this guy's ah! he's got his hands there, blood spurting out everywhere. And Jesus tells Peter to put away his sword and the Bible teaches that Jesus actually heals healed this man's ear. He puts this ear back on and miraculously and powerfully heals his ear. Jesus is in control of this arrest. Jesus is in control of this arrest. Actually, John tells us that when Jesus says, who did you come for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I'm, it's me. And they all fell down. Jesus is intentionally laying down his life. He is in control of this arrest. So Jesus acts quickly, rebukes his disciples, tells them to put away their sword. And then in verse 52, he says this, your sword, put your sword into its place. And then he gives a statement for all who take up the sword will perish by the sword. You disciples, there is a multitude of guys out here right now. They have clubs and swords, a large multitude. We're small. We've got 12, including me and you 11. You, some of you guys got swords here. And so you start taking out swords and start attacking. They're going to butcher every one of us. You live by the sword. You die by the sword. Now, does that mean that Jesus said, and, and again, this text has been so twisted and so taken out of context and used to the left and to the right? Some people take this, this passage to say that nobody should ever defend themselves. Nobody should ever have a gun. Nobody should ever do this or do that. Jesus is not saying that at all. And in fact, interestingly enough, in the book of Luke, in the same chapter, in Luke 22:38, 38, they say to Jesus, So they said, the disciples, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said, it is enough. In other words, Jesus said, oh, no, we don't believe in self-defense. No, we don't believe in that. No, no, dear friends. It's, it's 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 a lack of using responsibility if, say, an evil person walked into this room right now and just began shooting people. Is, it, uh, is Jesus teaching here that we're just supposed to let him shoot every one of the widows here, uh, line up every one of the children and shoot them and do absolutely nothing? That's an abdication of the responsibility that we have to protect ourselves. In my household, if somebody were to come in, an evil, deranged person were to come in to kill my family, am I supposed to sit around say because Jesus said this? Is that what Jesus means by that? No, that's not what he means at all. And the f- full context of Scripture would teach that. But what does it mean? It does. It means we're not to we're not to start an armed rebellion to build the kingdom of God. We're not to begin to have this armed rebellion that's going to build the kingdom of God. You're not going to build the kingdom of God through that kind of thing. And secondly, it clearly doesn't mean, which some people you know use because they absolutely negated this verse at all. It doesn't mean that we use violence in order to advance the kingdom of God. In other words, as used to happen at times where the sword was held out over somebody and says. Believe in Jesus and be baptized into the church or I'm cutting your head off. It certainly doesn't mean anything like that as well. And so you can see, uh, no, the gospel is to be propagated by the word of God and by casting down arguments and such. For instance, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5, it says this, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, are not earthly, are not fleshly, are not flesh and blood, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds and casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing every thought into captivity in obedience to Christ. No, no, no. The victory of the cross, the victory of the gospel doesn't come through violent force. It comes actually through sacrifice, through crucifixion, through humble service, through love. And that's how the gospel is to go forth. In fact, if you get some time, read the next section of Matthew Henry. He does a very good job in this. But then Jesus says something shocking. Something shocking. Look at verse 53. He says to Peter and the other disciples, he says, or do you think, or do you think that I cannot now pray to my father And he will provide me with more, a better translation would be much more, many more, than 12 legions of angels. Now, kids, if you're good at math, a legion is about 6,000 soldiers, okay? So you have 12 times 6, that's 72, 72, 72,000 angels. Do you not think that all I would have to do right now is pray to my Father and he will provide me with well over 72,000 angels? We'll we'll, we'll completely flood the, the Garden of Gethsemane here with angels. With angels that are armed and ready for action. Now, this is a jarring verse in many ways, isn't it? I mean, you want to have some good mental exercise and theological exercise? Try to understand what Jesus is saying here in context with what he says in verse 39. Oh, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but as you will. This is an interesting thing because there's a sense in which verse 53, if it means anything, it means what it says. At any moment, Jesus could have said, Call down the angels, bring down the angels. J.C. Ryo in the handout says this in the sex underline it would have been easy for him to scatter his enemies to the winds if he thought fit. If he thought fit. What do we see in here, dear friends? We see in here the hidden majesty and greatness of the Son of God. He is the royal heir of all. And He hid His glory while He was here upon earth, His glory was hid. But then there were times when we saw it at the Mount of Transfiguration where he glowed so much that the men had to fall to their faces because they couldn't look upon his face because it looked like the sun shining and it was going to burn their retinas. And his glory was so great that it was... And they saw for a moment this great glory. He has this great glory. This is his glory. Look at verse 64, what he's going to say uh, to, to the high priest. He says, uh, he's going to say this, Nevertheless, I say to you that hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power And coming on the clouds of heaven, and he goes on to say in other gospels with great glory and with a multitude of angels, Jesus is saying this: there are seventy-two thousand plus 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 angels in the realm of heaven right now, with swords already drawn, ready to come down and defend me as the very Son of God at this moment, if I sir uh, choose for that to happen. And you know what, dear friends, that would be tempting, wouldn't it? It would be the easy way out. It would be tempting. Save himself. He's being grabbed right now by these thugs. They've got these clubs hanging over him. They've got swords drawn at him. He's being grabbed as the very son of God. He's being grabbed right now by these men. And it would be tempting to know that I could end this right now. It would be tempting to know that these, these thugs who are, who are laughing and maybe making fun of him and, and, and talking about this fake rabbi and grabbing him, it would be, it would be so nice to be able to, to, to prove them wrong, to show them that they were wrong, and to not allow this arrest. And this arrest is obviously going to mean arrest, fake trial, beating, crucifixion, death. It's going to mean all of that. And he could stop it. He could stop it right now. In order to have a personal victory, in order to get personal vindication, in order to end this right now. And quite frankly, if I had 72,000 angels that I could call, man, I would have probably used it 10 times already in my lifetime at least. All right? Think of it. Think of how this works. Think of how you want, sometimes you want instant vindication. Imagine you were invited to a community meeting. You're recognized, you're respected in your community. You've been invited to a community meeting, and this community meeting is about uh, police protection and, and, uh, and violent, uh, trying to, to, to end violence in your community or something like that. And you're invited, there and you're sitting there, and you're sitting right next to the chief of police. And so while the, the, the meeting is going on, or maybe there's a dinner, you're, you're meeting and getting to know the chief of police. He's getting to know you. You have a lot of things in common. He's a nice guy. You like him. He likes you. You're having a great time with the chief of police. You leave that meeting, you go walking out, and you're walking down Main Street, say like a little town like Greenville, you're walking down Main Street, all of a sudden police cars pull up, grab you, slam you onto the Onto the uh, onto the police car and say you're under arrest for the robbery that just took place in the, in the last hour and somebody's been stabbed you're under arrest and they're slamming you're like wait 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 I was with the chief police I was here. bam they slam you back down your head crowds are gathering around you people are watching you and you're saying no no and they said go don't put your hand up and they're grabbing your hands they're putting them they're handcuffing you they're slamming you down they're holding you down there you're being absolutely completely humiliating and you're trying to talk to them. I'm innocent I wasn't there I have proof I can prove where I was and they say shut up and put your face down. There like that. We're in control here, and all of a sudden the chief of police comes walking down the street and he says, "What are you doing?" He's talking to the cops. What are you doing? Let him go. They said there was a robbery over the over there was a robbery in the street. Over somebody's been stabbed, and this man fits the the, the description exactly. He said, "No." No, I was with this man. I was with him for the last hour. He's an innocent man. Get those handcuffs off of him. I am so sorry the police chief is apologizing to you. And those handcuffs come off. And you know what I'm going to do at that point? (laughs) I'm looking at them two police officers. And I'm like, boys, what are you doing, man? What are you, crazy? I want vindicated with that crowd. And the police chief says, go get the bad guy. What are you doing? Quit arresting on the citizens. See, that's what Jesus could have had. Jesus could have had vindication right here. Could you imagine 72,000 armed and highly motivated uh, soldiers coming out of heaven, coming down to defend the very Son of God? What an honor it would be to be part of that 72,000, to defend and this, the, the, the honor and the dignity of the very Son of God, to come down and to take care of those enemies. Could you imagine how good that would have felt if you were standing there as, one, as the Son of God or even one of the disciples? But if Jesus would have taken that way out, we would have perished, we would have gone to hell, we would have died, and that's what he sees. Look at verse 54. How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? If I take the easy way out, if I take the way out that gives me personal safety and personal vindication, if I take the way out that's easy, all of the promises of Scripture, then none of them would be fulfilled. All of the foreshadowings, all of the lambs that were slain that were pointing to me as the Lamb of God. All of the sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins that was pointing to this justification that I was going to bring. All of the priests that were pointing to me as the great high priest. All of the prophesying, the entire plan of salvation, the will of my Father that was formed before the foundation of the world. All of that, all of these sheep that have been given to me, all of them would perish. I wouldn't be a good shepherd. They would Would all die. J.C. Ryle puts it this way in your third quote He came to be the scapegoat on whom the iniquities of the people were to be laid. His heart was set on accomplishing this great work. It could not be done without the hiding of his power for a time. To do it, he became a willing sufferer. He was taken, tried, condemned, and crucified entirely of his own free will. Jesus was intentionally laying down his life. Then Jesus rebukes those who have arrested him. In verse 55, it says this, "'In that hour Jesus said to the multitudes, "'Have you come out as against a robber "'with swords and clubs to take me? "'What is this excessive show of force here, guys? "'I sat daily with you in the temple.'" I know some of you guys. You guys are temple guards, some of you. You saw me in the temple with the crowd. Why didn't you take me then? You did not seize me then. No, no, no. But all of this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. By the way, notice something here. Jesus is totally committed to doing what the Bible says, to fulfilling the Scriptures' prophecies. Also, notice this in verse 54, the Scriptures, verse 56, the Scriptures, the Scriptures. Jesus believed in the Bible. Jesus was a Bible-believing man. Jesus believed that the Bible was the word of God, the scriptures were of God, they were foretold of God, the prophecies were real. All of these promises were to be fulfilled. And his entire life now at this point was being directed not by what he wanted to see done vindication and, and, and not have to go through the suffering. Not what his emotions were telling him he wanted as a human being to not have the sufferings. Not what Gethsemane showed us. And not what this is showing us. But what does the scripture say? What does the Bible say? What the Bible says God says. What the Bible says God wants. He understood and believed in the inerrancy of scripture. And we see it here. Scripture motivated his life. And then a sad thing happened. The end of verse 56. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. Those he is giving his life for. So intentionally laying down his life. They got super afraid. It suddenly turned every man for himself. And they were thinking about their own skin above everything else. Gone is their, is, Jesus prophesied this was going to happen. Look at verse 31. All of you will be made to submo because of me this night. And gone is their vaunted, and, and, uh, 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 their vaunted argument about their, that that won't happen. Look at verse 35. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny. And so said all of the disciples. That's gone. They fail him, but he doesn't fail them. What weak and frail and self-centered and cowardly sinners we are. But notice this. Jesus continues to live and give and intentionally lay down his life and die for them. They fail him, but he doesn't fail them. What a savior, what a wonderful savior. So let's conclude and apply this to ourselves. I began by saying this, and again, I'm not trying to be pejorative. Pejorative is that you say something just to beat up people with words and make them feel, I'm not trying that. But honestly, honestly, I don't think I would be fair without saying this, how paltry all other religions and worldviews are compared to this. How paltry. I say that with sadness. Millions of people hold to Hinduism, hold to Buddhism, where they follow holy diets and holy washings and hope that they can enter into some kind of God consciousness and perhaps be reincarnated in some other better form. Or Islam, with its authoritative Allah, who lays down the law and gives the five pillars by which you can accomplish salvation, And we even see some of the perverse outworkings of that where you're punished if your burqa is too loose. Or the religion of secularism, and dear friends, secularism is a a religion. It's a worldview based on presuppositions that you must hold to only by faith and faith alone. The world evolved out of nothing. The world is meaningless and purposeless. It has no purpose and meaning to it. There is no, and so life is just getting what you can out of it and after you die, there's nothing. Those are all faith propositions. Where secularism is a a religion. And secularism is built on a rotten foundation. That rotten foundation has been built since the Enlightenment. But now it's crumbling all around us. And we're seeing today the rotten fruits of secularism. What a paltry worldview this is. What a glorious, glorious religion this is. The very Son of God is laying down His life the very son of god is bearing the sins of those who forsake him and those who are even going to yell give us barabbas and not him the very son of god the father who so loved the world that he gives his only begotten son the word who was with god and was god becomes flesh takes on humanity, takes on all of our weakness as human beings who must eat to survive, who must breathe to survive, who must drink water to survive. The very Son of God brings himself down so that he can be nailed to a cross and suffer the punishment of our sin. God in his grace, God in his mercy, giving himself, giving himself, loving us and providing for us that we might find acceptance in Jesus Christ. That's what we're supposed to understand from this. J.C final quote is this it's on the other side of the page let us observe this there is much encouragement in it the willing sufferer will surely be a willing savior the almighty son of god who allowed men to bind him and lead him away captive when he might have prevented them with a word must surely be full of readiness to save the souls that flee to him once more, then, let us learn to trust him and not be afraid. Dear friends, we can flee to Jesus. We can come to him in all of our cowardice, in all of our sin, in all of our wretchedness, with all of our skeletons and all of our past and all of our sinful passions. Now we can come to him and we can come freely into his presence because he died for us and he lives for us and he's reigning for us and he's at the right hand of the throne of the Father. And we can be justified and we can be cleansed and we can be made right. And Hunter is going to experience baptism at this, place, at this in, in, in the next few moments here. And he's going to symbolize this cleansing that we have in Jesus Christ through faith. This cleansing of our bodies that we're going to symbolize that he's Christ and he's Christ alone. And he's going to be another fellow sinner with us, saved by grace. And, and he's been adopted. And he's going to symbolize all of that in front of us now. We can come boldly. We can come and be accepted. We can live in the Father's love we can experience the power of the Holy Spirit because Jesus took the hard way. Jesus chose the hard way for us. Dear friends, there's going to be times when you're you're going to be asked to choose the easy way or the hard way. Should we flee like the disciples? Maybe we even will be cowards sometimes. We'll be less than honest in this cancel culture world that we identify with Jesus. We, we just kind of we'll keep that underneath the surface. We fail to identify Jesus as our best friend. Dear friends, let's, be like, let's not be like that. Let's be like Jesus. Who when faced with the easy way, call down the angels, the hard way, crucifixion. He chose the hard way because that's what the scriptures said. That was the Father's will. That's what would save us. He's a good shepherd laying down his life for the sheep. Let us love him. Let us take the hard way of obedience, faithfulness, boldness with him. And if you are here today and you believe the paltry lies of secularism, the paltry lies of this culture, what a paltry little nothing they promise you. A little bit of happiness, maybe you can get some money, maybe you can have a relationship, maybe you can get some drugs and forget stuff for a while, maybe you can get that and then you die and you rot in a grave, that's their glorious religion. That's the religion of Hollywood, that's the religion of the movie stars, that's the religion of the rock stars, that's the religion of the, of the, of the elites of our country. What a paltry, Or you can come to the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ and find in him forgiveness and eternal life and acceptance and love, even for sinners like us. May God save you. You're invited. You're invited. Come. Come to the Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord Jesus, every step along this way from Gethsemane to the arrest, every step along this way, your glory shines, your beauty shines, your love shines. Our, our reasons to trust you, as we sang earlier, to simply trust you become more and more and more. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you that you saved. Thank you that you saved today. Thank you for the wonderful encouragement we have of seeing a a young man commit and publicly profess his faith in you today by undergoing the waters of baptism. Thank you that to this day, you're still working and moving amongst people, drawing them to yourself. Father, thank you. I pray for any who are here today and they're empty or they're feeling particularly wicked or sinful or they just are embarrassed by their past, or they just need a fresh new start. I pray that you will help them to flee into the arms of Jesus, to flee and find in the arms of Jesus all that they need for life, for forgiveness, for eternal life. Help them, I pray. And thank you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are so willing and so loving. We praise you and glorify you in your precious name. Amen.